Please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Coming this morning from James chapter 1, James chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. Listen to this. This is the Word of God. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you want to keep your Bibles out this morning, we're going to be uh, flipping around a little bit as we deal with some of the harder aspects of this text. Um, so make sure you follow along with me. Um, just a quick reminder on the book of James. This is, uh, as best we can tell, was written by the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. He's writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed from, from Jerusalem and from Israel into, uh, into modern-day Turkey and the surrounding areas. They are scattered because of their faith. They've been through hard times. We all come with bearing burdens and struggles this morning, uh, and, and they, are all, you know, they are all hard things that the Lord's called us to bear. And the brothers and sisters that he was writing to had very, very heavy burdens they were wrestling through. And in the midst of it, James acknowledges their struggles and tells them to find joy in the midst of it. And he does this by reminding them that everything has a purpose. It's been much, that's been a common refrain here through the first chapter, uh, up to verse 12 we're going to be looking today. Before we look a little closer at, uh, at the Word, though, at the special revelation that God's given this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like us to contemplate the creation around us. Because, uh, there's an aspect of it that I think will help us as we consider this passage today. For some of you, you're going to have to go back and remember your high school physics textbooks or your general science textbooks. Some of you, some of you that's very familiar. You're right in the midst of this. Remember the go back and remember the chapter on atoms, on the fundamental building blocks of all matter, on the stuff that makes up all the stuff around us. You probably had some kind of illustration with a bunch of gumballs. They were probably red and blue ones in the middle representing the protons and the neutrons and the nucleus of the atom. And then there were probably smaller little gumballs flying around the outside and orbit around it, the electrons alongside it. Is this, is this ringing a bell? Vaguely. All right, a few nods of the head. Sounds good. So, think about, so you have the protons and the neutrons in the center. You have the electrons around the outside. And they're nice little discrete little balls because it's very helpful to learn that way. And in real life, protons, neutrons, electrons look nothing like that. If we could see these tiny little things, they would look nothing like those discrete little ping-pong balls, uh, colored ping-pong balls that are put in there. Uh, they, look, they would look very, very different. Now, as we sit here this morning, uh, everything's, you know, everything's fairly quiet right now, which I appreciate. Thank you all for that. At least, if, at least if you're over the age of 12. You're sitting here quietly. You're sitting in your pews. Everything seems pretty predictable and orderly. And you're wondering where I'm going with this analogy. 
But for right now, but what you're not questioning is the firm surface that you're sitting on or the firm Bibles that you're holding in your hands. We take those things for granted. But if you could look close at the atoms that make up the, these wooden pews and the floors that they sit upon and the Bibles in your hands, all of these things would actually not be made up of those discrete little hard objects that you remember from your science textbooks. It would actually look like a roiling mass of chaos. Atoms in real life are a mess. There's no reason they should even be holding together. Uh, we don't even know why they're holding together. These protons in the middle that we're all talking about, they're in constant motion. They're continually jiggling, trying to get away from each other. They all have the same electrical charge, so they just want to fly apart. The electrons on the outside are moving even faster. They're in constant motion. And if you actually were to look close, which is very hard to do for reasons we won't get into today, you would actually you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to focus on anything. Everything's moving too fast. And so a better picture of it is not uh, is not hard little balls, but actually clouds. Clouds of where these elements are likely to be at any given moment, because they're in constant motion. They're surging, and most and most of what's in an atom is actually empty space. It's hard to imagine that the fundamental building blocks of this solid stuff that surrounds us is, is ready to fly apart any minute, and there's hardly anything there. puts you in mind of the God who made everything out of nothing and indeed still maintains everything with very, very little. Most of what is out there is just emptiness. Physicists have... Uh, physicists have they have one of the fundamental forces of the universe that they have theorized is, is simply called the strong force or the strong nuclear force. And it's just an incredibly powerful force. And if that sounds hand-wavy, that's because it is. And, it do, and all they know is that it, it's active in the atomic nucleus and it holds all those protons together who want to fly apart at any moment. How that happens? There's some particles, there's some theories, there's, uh, the word quantum mechanics gets thrown around a lot, but at the end of the day, we don't fully understand why that is. We don't understand why any of us are, still, are here and why we continue to be here. All of existence is truly in God's hands at any one time. And he builds an orderly, predictable, beautiful universe on top of, of, of literal shifting sand. What we're going to see this morning is that's true in the physical world, although we take it for granted. And it is true in our spiritual lives as well. We would like nice, orderly, predictable things to go around this all the time, but the Lord is pleased to work, you know, the Lord is pleased to refine us in a furnace, a furnace of trials, a furnace that feels like chaos, a world that feels like it cannot hold together much longer. That's the world that the Lord has called us to, that we live in, and that's what our lives are very often. And that's what James is writing to the, uh, writing to the people of the Lord about this passage. So look again at verse 12 uh, in James chapter 1 in front of you. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now suffering, difficulty, the um, hardship in this life, that's, not, that's nothing unusual. In this fallen world, everybody's got a hard time of it. If you were to go around the other side of the world, uh, if you're going around the other side of the world, and you were to step outside the, of the great city of Jakarta, Indonesia, you would be, you would step into, you would immediately, you could not avoid noticing the landfill of Bantar Gabong. It's one of the largest landfills in the world. 
due to a rapidly growing population in Jakarta and very, very poor waste management practices, this landfill is gigantic. And it's just getting larger and larger and larger. And it's so big that it's consumed many of the villages um, around, on the outskirts of the city. So many people literally live in the middle of a garbage dump right now. And, that's, and that would be very hard. And the children who are born there would wake up to the smell of filth and rotting garbage, and they would smell that every day of their lives. And we could go out there and we could find people in difficult circumstances like this all over the world. And it's, but it's not enough to just say life is tough, deal with it. That is not the hope that James brings us to today. Because if you're found in Christ this morning, then you have something very, very, that very, very different that he's called to you. Now that now you've got hard things going on in your life too. But what James wants you to realize is that is no accident. And you weren't just, you weren't just born into a bad situation. Sorry about that. It wasn't a result of your environment, your bad parenting. Ultimately, it was God's plan that puts you right where you are, dealing with what you're dealing with this morning. And that's what James was saying to his original hearers as well. There's trials like personal conflict among family and friends, abuse, persecution, above all, sin. Nobody, nobody earns anything by going through this. Unbelievers may gain some street smarts or a little experience through them. but They only get hardened in their wickedness or despair along the way. Christians, on the other hand, they don't merit, we don't merit anything by going through trials of persecution. We don't earn anything from it. But the Lord is pleased to sanctify his people through their trials. Those trials, they work good in us. We're going to return to this, but we need to remember it, particularly in the midst of dealing with our sin. Because if we think about trials of persecution, it's very easy to think about the outward things out there. Somebody said something mean to me. Um, somebody laughed at because I said I was a Christian. Um, I've got, I got fired because I didn't go through, I, would, I, refu- I didn't get what I needed to out of gender sensitivity training that was mandatory. Those are, you know, we think of those external things, but we need to, but what James, and James has discussed that, but what he wants to talk about now is the greatest hardship of all is what comes from within us, is what we bring every day. Because when you came in here, you didn't just bring the scars and the wounds, the externalities. What you brought was your sin this morning. And we can all sit here and we can think of the sins, we can think of the sins that we've been fighting all this week and they're still, we had to still fight them this morning. Yes, we had the one-offs. Yeah, we snapped at a kid. Yes, we had unkind words to our husband and our wife. Yes, we, yeah, the movie we watched on Saturday night, that was not very edifying. Um, but some of those may be one-offs. But then for some of us, there's the sins that we just keep coming back to. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And it's very tempting to say, Lord, why did you make me this way? Lord, why do I have this? Why can't I get victory over this? And those are the greatest trials of all because we cannot escape that. There's nowhere we can go in the world and not have that trial with us wherever we go. And that's what he heads into, and that's that's the trial he's really trying to grapple with here, particularly ahead in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's the last time I touch this thing. If it falls and you can't hear me, yell and I'll put it back on. I'm going to ignore it for the rest of the sermon this morning. <laughs> so what does it mean to say, what does it mean to say, 
Let no one say, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. At first glance, that seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? God is good, right? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a discussion for another sermon this morning, but let's take that, we, I think we all take that for granted as we come in. God is good. So, of course, he's not going to tempt us, right? Of course, he's not the source of temptation. Well, it's interesting. Commentaries you read will sometimes, they'll sometimes double down on that obvious statement, or sometimes they'll say, well, hang on, what's he talking about here? Let's look at the passages with me. Flip to Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. We all know how this story turns out, and it's a beautiful foreshadowing of the father's future sacrifice of his own son in our place. But until you get there, But the opening is deeply disturbing because God asks Abraham to do something very, very difficult and indeed something that God specifically forbade in other parts of Scripture. Or look at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, 21 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. The Lord promises that in spite of all the wonders that Moses will perform in Egypt, he will harden Pharaoh's heart. He tells Moses, and Moses is not the the only prophet who does this in Scripture. He says, go and speak this truth, and nobody's going to listen. And the people who need to listen will be the last ones to respond to what you have to say. Pharaoh is, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he he will remain in his rebellion against me. He will not hear your words. Time and again, through Exodus, Pharaoh does just that, and the Lord does just that. And not just, to Pharaoh, and not just to Pharaoh. We see the Lord hardening the hearts of his and his people's enemies throughout much of the rest of the word. He's pleased many times to drive his enemies against his own purpose so that he may destroy them. Isaiah writes about this in Isaiah 63. If you look at Isaiah 63 with me. Isaiah 63, 16 and 17. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, tribes of your heritage. I don't know about you, but that that jars me a little bit this morning. If I were praying in Isaiah's place, I would be grieving for my sin, and I would be, and I'd be asking for help, and I'd say, Lord, please 
please soften my heart. My heart is hard. I need softening. I need drawing towards you. But he asked the Lord, please stop hardening our hearts. Please bring us back to you. Writing on this passage from James, going back to James, James chapter 1.13 in particular, where it says that the Lord does not tempt anyone. Calvin writes in his commentary, Here, no doubt, he speaks of another kind of temptation. It is abundantly evident that the external temptations hitherto mentioned are sent to us by God. In this way, God tempted Abraham, referencing the passage from Genesis 22, and daily tempts us, that is, he tries us as to what we are by laying before us an occasion by which our hearts are made known. But to draw out what is hidden in our hearts is a far different thing from inwardly alluring our hearts by wicked lusts. Now let's reiterate what's really important. 1 John 1.5 reminds us that this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Calvin, in his commentary, he struggles like many others. How are we to exonerate God from responsibility for our sin when he clearly gives people up to it throughout history? So on the one hand, God is perfectly good. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand we see times when he gives people up to their sin in many ways. Consider Romans chapter 1, that's where I want, and that's where I want us to land and meditate for just a few minutes here as we consider this. Romans 1.24 says, very famous passage, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And I won't go on into the details of this right now. The thing to note is that God gave them up. God tests, God tests or tempts, as some translations put it, but he only gives us up to what's, only, what's already in our hearts. He lets us alone with our sin for a time. Or if, uh, or if, we're truly out, or if someone is truly outside of his favor, he gives them up to their sins completely. When we do good, we should see and praise the good hand of God upon us. When we do evil, we should acknowledge the removal of his grace for a time and the hopelessness we face to ourselves. So look again back in James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So you see here, there is nothing God has to put into us. There is nothing he has to do to actually harden our hearts. Our hearts are stone. There are dead stones already in the midst of our chests. So when, we are, when you are here and when you are praising God, when you have lost yourself in worship, then reach out and praise him because that is his hand upon you. That is his spirit, uh, inflaming love for himself in your heart when he comes. When your children, when your children are, uh, are quarreling with each other and you're, uh, when your head hurts trying to referee all the disputes, and when you remember to stop and to breathe and to pray and then to work very calmly and patiently through, you know, through the difficulty in your household, that is the Lord's hand upon you. That is Him softening your heart, granting you that patience that you may bless others. When you see a need... 
when you reach out to someone who needs encouragement with kind words, when you reach out to someone, um, uh, when you reach out to someone who needs, uh, needs help, who needs a prayer, who needs a hand on the shoulder, like we prayed about earlier. Again, that's the Lord pushing your heart. That's Him actively reaching down and changing who you are in that moment. And then when you sin, when you sin, that is, when you sin, when the Lord is pleased to harden you, that is Him pulling back. And that is Him, and that is him showing you who you are without Him for a few moments. And your heart, your heart that was vibrant and warm and beating just a moment ago, all of a sudden it calcifies and it, and it becomes brittle. And it becomes brittle and hard as soon as his presence starts to draw away from for a time. And when you sin and you feel that brittle heart in your chest, then this is the time when James says to be careful. Because that is your sin that you're grappling with in that moment. And you will be blamed to say, Lord, why did you make me this way? Why did I do that sin? Why didn't you stop me? I wish I could say there was a prayer this morning and you'd never face that sin again in your life that you're struggling with right now. I wish it for my own sake, above all. There are sins we just cannot seem to shake. And we know they come from our own hearts. And, it is, and if you have never, and if you have never been tempted to blame the Lord for that sin, then, then you meet, then how sensitive to your sins are you? James knows that the people he's writing to, they're in very hard circumstances. And when you get desperate, then you will blame everyone you can, especially the people you love around you, especially the God who loves you more than anything else. And you will point a finger at him and say, Lord, why did you tempt me? You knew I was going to fall. Why did you let me fall into that? So obviously, so obviously, let's take the passage for what it just clearly says. Don't blame God for your sins. Those sins are your own. And your only hope is not to shove him away and wag your finger in his face, but to come on your knees and ask, Lord, I need grace this morning. I need your hand back upon me. I love the feeling of that warm, beating heart. Again, I need it back. I don't want the calcified zombie heart uh, that I had before I came to you. That one that sins and doesn't care. And that's why the Lord pulls his hand back for a while, because we remember who we were before and say, I don't want to go back to that, Lord. Stay with me. Stay with me. Come back. Because God is perfectly good. And I think it's important to remember here in the midst of this, um, one other thing to look at is from uh, Roman, in Romans. Romans chapter 8, Paul wrestles with much the same thing that James does here. Give me just a second. I'll make sure I get this one right. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
so that we'd be the firstborn among many brethren. We're going to come back to that in just a minute because in that we see God's purpose. That's just a taste of hope, though. We need to wrestle with this a little bit longer. Because on the one hand, the conviction here is do not blame. We need to remember, do not blame God for our sin. Turn to him for help instead. However, there's another thing that we need to consider. Another thing that this passage warns us against, it warns us against looking at our innate sin. The sin, you know, the sin nature we have, and particularly those unique lusts that we carry in our heart that we fight against every day. This commands us not to look at those and say, well, that's inescapable, that's just who I am. Does anyone profess that today? I mean, to answer that question today is to answer it. And evangelical Reformed Christians are going down the same slippery slope that mainline Protestantism did in this country and says that same-sex attraction is God-given and that it is a part of who you are and your innate desires, and there's nothing you can really do about it. Except, at least for now, they're saying you can't act upon those desires. You just have to have them. And you can't, uh, as long as you don't do anything, it's the best we can do. Many are considering same-sex attraction manifestation of human brokenness that cannot be acted upon, must be pitied and born with. It cannot be removed or changed because it is innate to a person's identity. The way he, uh, he or she has been made. Which sounds an awful lot to me like saying, God made me this way, I can't escape it. This temptation I bear is just part of what God put in my heart. And that is where we have to remember that our, tempta- remember our temptations do not define us. Our temptations may be part of the burden we bear, but they are not there to, that's not who we are, particularly not in Christ. Our temptations are there to be fought and labored against. A couple weeks ago in, uh, at North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, um, the church hosted the Unconditional Conference under the leadership of senior pa- pastor Andy Stanley, son of, the late Charles, son of the late noted evangelist Charles Stanley. The event was a build a, as an approach to supporting pre- parents and their gay and transgender children in church. Uh, in churches from the quieter middle space. They said, all right, let's stop arguing. Uh, Let's come together like rational people and talk about how we support these kids who have these desires that they can't control. And by middle space, it simply means that you're not allowed to come in and disagree. You have to come and acknowledge that these desires are an innate factor of human life now, and your children can't change. How do we affirm and love them in the church? World Magazine, uh, right covered this uh, with several articles over the past couple weeks, both leading up to, during, and after uh, this conference. And they noted that they're following the moral compromise that has destroyed mainline Protestantism in the United States. They're doing what the PCUSA, United Methodism, mainline Lutheranism, and many others have already tried to do, but now it's happening in Bible-thumping evangelical and Reformed churches. And to that, and to that, one of the, pa- one of the, passage- one of the hot passages like Romans 1, that 124 we read, is also James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Because the, the debate is over whether, this desire, whether, whether desire is sinful or whether action upon desire is sinful. And what this clearly says is that 
all temptation, that our temptation ultimately comes from the lust that we have in our heart, the lust that we're culpable for. And so wanting sin is every bit as much sin as, uh, as actions, and we, we, actions we commit and words that we say. But that's too easy. That affects, that condemns people who are out there. Nobody's preaching for, nobody's, pre, you know, nobody's preaching, you know, preaching on, same, on the inescapability of same-sex attraction here. Nobody's talking about, you know, welcoming gay Christians in. Well, we are talking about that. We're just not, we're just saying you can't, we don't welcome any sinner in and say you can't, you stay where you are. The Lord forgives your sin and changes who you are. That's going to be preached here. But let's bring this application a little closer to home. It's entirely possible that someone in this room is struggling with same-sex attraction or some other form of lust. As a matter of fact, we try to act like we don't. We're in a perilous place. If there's ever sins that we think, oh, we're too good for that, and we don't know the depravity of our own hearts. Because let's remember, we do this in our own lives, don't we? It's not just the people who are same-sex attracted. Uh, it's not just people who are tempted to homosexuality or are discontent with the, uh, with the gender that God created you. It's not just those people who, who take an element of sin and lust and say, this is who I am. We do this on a daily basis, don't we? Have you ever said, oh, I'm just introverted. I don't, I don't like to talk to people. I'm shy, uh, retiring. I'm just going, you know, I'm not going to care for anybody. I don't really, I can't, don't really know how to care for other people. Have you ever said, well, I'm just depressed. That's just who I am. I get down in the dumps and it takes me days to get out of it. Have you ever said, I'm passionate. I don't have a filter. I say things the way, you know, I say things the way I see them and I just can't stop. I know it's not right, but that's just who I am. In all of these things, we try to take our sins and we try to make them fundamental to who we are, and in so doing, we try to excuse them rather than fight against them. I'm passionate. I say what I think. I have no filter. I can't talk to people. I lose my temper easily. I'm from the north. I'm, that's just that's the way I am. I'm from the south. That's just the way I am. I'm too German. I'm too Dutch. I'm too Zambian. I'm too Ugandan. I'm too Korean. Uh, I can't help the fact. I can't help my passion, my detachment, my inconsideration. It's all just part of the, you know, it's all just part of my cultural makeup, my genetics, my, uh, my temperament, my red hair. We will look at so many ways to try to say this is the way I am because of this, and you're just gonna have to give, you're just gonna have to bear with me, brother. In so many ways. But what we need to remember is, but again, and in the same way we're doing it, I'm being tempted by God because this seems to be inescapable. And once we despair, then we look, you know, in our despair, we try to hide from the ramifications of this. Instead of recognizing that, what do, we rec- what do we need to recognize? We need to persevere. We need to persevere through this trial. Just like everything else, just like the, just like the mockery, just like the hard circumstances, just like lack of money, just like a loss of a, loss of a job, the sins in our heart are no accident. The sins that you are dealing with this morning didn't come out of nowhere. They not only are yours because you were born in original sin, they are yours because God loves you, and this is a crucible that he is perfecting you in. Calvin goes on to write, They reason absurdly who hence infer that we are fighting, that, that we by fighting merit the crown, the crown mentioned in the beginning of this passage. For since God has gratuitously appointed it to us, our fighting only renders us fit to receive it. 
If you are here and you are in the Lord Jesus today, there is a crown of glory that's awaiting you at the end. When we'd all like to say, all right, Lord, can we just have it right now? And he says, nope, you've got something to do. There's many things he has for you to do. But one of the things he has for you to do is to endure and to persevere through trials, including the ones that are in your own chest right today, including the sins you're wrestling with. Because for he says, for he goes immediately to saying this whole thing about lust is conceived. It gives birth to sin. Sin is accomplished. It brings forth death. And he says at this moment, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Where are we all tempted to be deceived right now? We're tempted to think, that's it. That's all there is. It's just this sin I'm never going to be able to shake. And it's just making me miserable to no end. And he says, he immediately turns and almost sounds like, it almost sounds like it shouldn't be part of the paragraph. It almost sounds like a different thought. For he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of firstfruits among his creatures. And that echoes what he just says, that echoes what he says in Romans, and what Paul says in Romans 8.29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn, my many brethren. We are to be the firstborn, we are the firstfruits among his creatures in the likeness of the firstborn uh, from the dead. In raising Jesus from the dead, he not only saved us from our sin, he even redeemed the, the process of us grappling with our sin for the rest of our lives. So think again about that sin that you brought in this morning, that one that you can't stop thinking about as I've been preaching, that one that you probably haven't, you may not have told anybody about, or you're hoping nobody finds out about it. It's so bad this morning. Or think about the sin that you've excused or you've made, uh, you've made excuses for, you've tried to soft pedal on. I mean, I do it all the time. I, I get panic attacks when I have to get on large, you know, meetings with more than three people, and I don't know what I'm going to say, and I'm worried I'm going to say something stupid, and I worry I'm going to not look as good as I want people to think of me. And I see it when I see, it when I see a brother or sister who's struggling, and I know it, and I don't want to go talk to him because I'm introverted and withdrawn. And I, was, I want to stay where it's, I want to stay where I'm safe and comfortable. And I've done it with lust and temptation. I've struggled to guard my eyes in so many ways. And I don't like to talk about it, and I don't want anybody to know because they're going to think less of me because of it. And in all these things, I want to find excuses and rationale for why it doesn't matter, why I don't have to struggle with it. But what the Lord's telling to me and what he's telling to all of you today is that that sin, yes, even that sin, even the worst things about you are yours for a reason. He has this crown of life, and you're not ready for it yet because the work in you is not done yet. You have that sin to fight for a few more years of your life upon this earth. And when you receive that crown, then you will know that it is yours because you will suddenly see the Lord's hand in everything that you've done, not just in the worship, not just in the prayer, but in the strength he's given you to get knocked down by your own sin, to repent, to get back up and fight it again. And when you, can't, when you lose strength for that, then he'll give you the grace to go and find somebody who you need, who you need to pray with you. So in his uh, Sunday school lesson this morning, Matt made a great point. It's very often that we, uh, we come to worship and we're not ready for worship. We're thinking about our work. Okay, I did that this morning. I had to struggle. I had to shut down. I woke up at 5 a.m. thinking about my work week because I got a lot of stuff to do this week, and I was worried about it. And that is, that is not, you're not ready for worship when you're worrying. We have that. 
We have conflict in our families. We have a friend who says something mean to us. All these things come to mind when we come in here to worship. And how do we get that out? Obviously, personal devotion and a disciplined walk with the Lord is important to be filling our minds with the things that drive out worry and anxiety. But sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, we still show up and we're not ready. And so what Matt talked about this morning is, you know what, at that time, pray. And if you can't pray, grab a brother or sister and ask, that, you know, ask to pray together and say, I'm not ready for this. Can you help me get ready for this? Can we go to the Lord together and get prepared for this? And that's how we fight our sins. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This emphasizes that the Lord's desire is to conform us to the image of his Son. Nothing about any of this, especially the sins you are struggling against in your own life, are accidents. Remember that you have the good and perfect gift that has come down from above. Your life, my life, world history is just like those atoms we thought about for a few minutes, at the a few minutes here at the beginning. It's a mess. It's a really mess of chaos and everything around us. And for people like me who like things neat and orderly and systematized, it's very frustrating because we'd like to see the way, you know, we'd like to see everything fall, we'd like to see all the, we'd like to see all the round, you know, the round pegs in the circular holes all the time. We'd like to see that clearly. But in the midst of it, life is hard, it's fast-paced and messy, but that's only for us. For God, everything that you're struggling with this morning is just part of the plan, and he knows it. And so when you get tired and discouraged in the midst of that struggle, then go to the one who has the plan and pray for grace, if not to know the plan, to trust the planner and to ask him to show you the next thing to do after that. Amen? Amen. All right, bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess the sins that we're struggling with today. And Lord, we've confessed that in our exasperation, we have blamed you for them. Lord, as our first father did, we have said, why have you made to the maker of all things? Lord God, will, will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? But we have been that rebellious clay into your hands. Lord, we have not only been frustrated by our sin. We have loved our sin. We have cherished it and protected it. We have, when we have tried to build up humorous walls around it that prevent people from, that prevent people from pointing it out. And Lord, we have concluded this is the way we are, and, we li- and uh, we've gone the other direction. We've liked the way, everything about ourselves. And we've tried to say we're going to continue to live that no matter what you say. Heavenly Father, the sin that so easily entangles us has been, uh, Lord, is from you. And in your wisdom, it is there for us to fight, and you give us the grace to do it every day. Lord, we ask that we would rest in your care, your love for us. Heavenly Father, bring to our minds the sins, the sins that we struggled with this past week and that we're still holding on to. Lord, we confess them to you. We confess that we're imperfect before you, but we also acknowledge that you are good that you are good in thing, that you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. And in you, 
uh, Lord, in you we have the victory. And we look for the crown, we look for the crown of glory to come. And we will be patient and persevere in the race that you have for us to run to get there. Lord, let us, uh, Lord, let us look away from ourselves unto our Lord and Savior, and let him let his uh, Lord let his glorious purpose be our own. And let us seek to be a, an encouragement and uh, and to bring and to take the grace that you give us and to spread it to all those around us in the midst who are fighting the same fight that we are. Lord, let us be perfected. Uh, let us be perfected. And let your name be glorified in that process. In Jesus' name, amen.